Welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. For this episode, we're going to talk about the short life of Jensen Farley Pictures. That was their opening fanfare just now. You probably don't remember them by name, but if you grew up in the early 1980s, you probably have seen at least one of their films and would remember several more of them on the shelves of your local video store. Jensen Farley Pictures was founded in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1980 by Raylan Jensen, who had previously founded the infamous 1970s distribution company Sun Classics and Claire Farley, one of the executives at Sun Classics. You remember Sun Classics, right? If you're a child of the 70s, you remember their movies with catchy titles like In Search of Noah's Ark and The Bermuda Triangle and The Lincoln Conspiracy. What kid wouldn't want to see The Outer Space Connection? Sun Classics, a division of Schick Razor Company, made cheap second-rate movies with dramatic titles meant to steal your $2 from your wallet before you realized how much you had been conned. After a while, you started to recognize the Sun Classics name, and you went anyway because Sun Classics meant some real gonzo bullshit was going to happen on screen. In 1980, the Schick Razor Company sold Sun Classics to Taft Broadcasting, and Jensen left the company he founded to start up a new one. But unlike Sun Classics, and, rather strangely for a film company based in Utah, the Jensen Farley Film Library would consist mainly of horror films and sex comedies, films that were very much in vogue during that time. However, despite some of the minor successes their films would achieve at the box office, Jensen Farley would be bankrupt in three short years, having been able to put their footprints on but 19 films. Let's take a look at them. Their first release was in September 1980, The Agency, a Canadian-made thriller directed by George Kanzander. The $6 million man's Lee Major starred as an ad agency creative manager who discovered his boss, played by Robert Mitchum, is using subliminal advertising to manipulate elections. The film also featured the great Saul Rubinick in his first major film role, a role that he would be nominated for a Genie Award for Best Supporting Actor, and a post-Superman Valerie Perrine. Of the $4 million budget for the film, nearly one-fourth of it went to its two main stars, Mitchum would earn a cool half a million dollars for his efforts, while Majors would earn $425,000, or about half of what he would be earning for an entire season of the $6 million man at that time. The agency would only get a small regional release before it was licensed to HBO, and there was no publicly available records for how much it had grossed in theaters. It would be a couple more years before box office figures would become something the average member of the public would have any immediate access to thanks to shows like Entertainment Tonight. But today you can watch the agency for free on Amazon Prime Video if you like, if you're a Prime member, or you can find multiple versions of the film for free on YouTube. Jensen Farley's next film, 1981's The President Must Die, was a documentary purporting to expose the cover-up of the JFK assassination conspiracy. In a February 1980 article in Parade Magazine, the writer of The President Must Die explained how the movie came to be. He explained how, before production even began, researchers were sent out to cities across the nation to ask average citizens 
how they believed Kennedy was killed. After feeding our data into the computer, he explained, we went to the conspiracy theory, the premise that was closest to what the majority believed. But what if the computer had pinned the blame solely on Oswald? Well, we would have gone with that angle instead, he said. We're interested in drama, not politics. How well the film did, we will never know. Again, there's no public information for how ticket sales went. And since its theatrical release, the film has never been released in any format on home video, although it was allegedly syndicated to independent television stations in the early 1990s. But there's nothing available for it outside of a picture of a one-sheet and a few scans of a newspaper ad from when it played in Phoenix, Arizona. Private Lessons, released in August of 1981, would become Jensen Farley's first hit film. Private Lessons is not about learning how to chase cars or chase balls. Back in. Yes, sir, Mr. Travis. Why don't you come and visit me tonight after I've finished with the dishes? We could talk. Private Lessons is all about growing up and learning how to chase women. Don't close the door. What? I said close the door. She takes off all her clothes. Everything. And I mean everything. So then what? What do you mean, so then what? So then I came here to tell you. Are you kidding me? Would you like to join me? Would I like to what? Take a bath with me. You mean in there with you right now? Mm-hmm. You what? You asked her to marry you? What are you, sick? Don't say a word, my virgin child. Just let your inhibitions run wild. The secret is about to unfold Upstairs before the night's too old Sometimes boy meets woman is more fun than boy meets girl But he has a lot more to learn before graduation day She didn't think she was going to love this assignment Sylvia Christel in her sexiest role since Emmanuel he was much better off in Cincinnati. Howard Hespin, PB's Johnny Fever, gets his own private lesson. What happened to him should happen to you. Eric Brown, the luckiest kid of luck. Your own fantasies come to life in private lessons. With music performed by Rod Stewart, Eric Clapton, Air Supply, and others. Sylvia Crystal, the star of the 1970s softcore hit Emmanuel, stars as an illegal immigrant housemaid who seduces the 15-year-old son of her employer. The film also stars WKRP's Howard Hessman and Ed Begley Jr. Made on a budget of $2.8 million, Private Lessons would become their biggest hit, making more than $26 million. The only thing worth noting about the film now, beside Howard Hessman's bad haircut and mustache making him look like the sad older brother of J.K. Simmons's J. Jonah Jameson, is that this was the first major American movie shot by cinematographer and future Speed and Twister director Jan DeBont. September 1981 would see the release of The Boogans, a rather tepid horror film produced by Charles E. Sellier Jr., who, three years later, would go on to direct the infamous Silent Night, Deadly Night. 
Shot outside Park City, Utah, on a budget of $600,000, The Boogans is about four construction workers who unwittingly unleash a group of reptilian creatures from a long-abandoned mine. The film would gross $4 million after a series of regional releases. It's the screenwriting debut of Jim Coff, who would later go on to write the Richard Dreyfus Emilio Estevez hit Stakeout, the cult horror classic The Hidden, and the original Rush Hour movie, as well as co-create the TV show Grimm. But here he used the pseudonym Bob Hunt. Another horror film, Madman, would get an initial theatrical release in Detroit and Wilmington, Delaware, in January of 1982, a full year before it would open in major cities like New York or Los Angeles. Another horror film, Madman, would get an initial theatrical release in Detroit and Wilmington, Delaware in January of 1982, a full year before it would open in a major city like New York or Los Angeles. Madman, which like 1981's The Burning, is based on a New York urban legend of something called the Cropsy Maniac, stars Paul Ehlers as Madman Mars, an axe-wielding murderer who stalks a group of campers in the woods. Also starring Galen Ross from Dawn of the Dead, it is said that Madman, made at a budget of $350,000, was a drive-in hit, but there are no box office numbers currently available for the film. Three months later, Jensen Farley would release the lackadaisical Canadian drama If You Could See What I Hear. Directed by Eric Till, who would later direct Brian Dennehy as serial killer John Wayne Gacy in a TV movie, as well as 16 episodes of Fraggle Rock, if You Could See What I Hear starred a pre-Beastmaster Mark Singer as real-life blind Canadian musician Tom Sullivan. Produced at a cost of 5.6 million Canadian dollars, If You Could See What I Hear would play in more than 550 theaters in the United States and gross more than $8.5 million. But it's not a very good film. Siskel and Ebert named this one as one of the worst movies of the year in a 1982 wrap-up episode of... Sneak previews. It was all-out war. Innocent students against a self-appointed lawman who wants them all wrapped. Anytime they stop, they're trapped. Report of murder. Trapped, starring Henry Silva as a one-man death machine. Escape. Trapped. Starring Henry Silva, Nicholas Campbell, and Barbara Gordon. The following month would see the release of Baker County, USA, which, incidentally, was only partially shot in the USA, 
thanks to Canadians' then-popular tax-shelter filmmaking rules. Also known as Trapped, or The Killer Instinct, Baker County, USA stars the great Henry Silva as a redneck who goes after a group of college students hiking in the woods when they witness him kill his wife's lover. One of the hikers is played by Nicholas Campbell, who, the following year, would be featured in what many consider to be his signature role as Frank Dodd in fellow Canadian David Cronenberg's masterful adaptation of Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Later that summer in August, Homework would get a small national release through Jensen Farley. The less said about Homework, the better. It's truly a horrible movie. It's yet another older woman fucks an underage boy story, which was only released due to the career resurgence of Joan Collins, thanks to the hit TV show Dynasty. The day before the film's premiere, several of the stars of the film sued to have their names removed from the film. Collins did not like that the advertising was centered around her, since her role was a minor supporting role, and the major sex scene between her and the young boy had been shot with a body double. Another actor in the movie, Betty Thomas, who had also broken into the zeitgeist thanks to NBC's smash hit Hill Street Blues after this film had been made, claimed that the film she signed up for was not the final film and that her participation had been made under false pretenses. But the courts mostly disagreed with their arguments. The only verdict positive to any of the actors was that Jensen Farley was ordered to stop using the advertising that depicted Miss Collins nude. But a half-naked Collins on the initial poster helped catapult the film to a $1.35 million gross in just 262 theaters its opening weekend, a $5,215 per screen average. For comparison's sake, two years later, in October 1984, The Terminator would have a $4 million opening weekend on slightly more than 1,000 screens for a $4,000 per screen average. On a per screen average, more people wanted to see a naked Joan Collins than a naked Arnold Schwarzenegger. Later that fall, Jensen Farley released Jamie Yu's The Gods Must Be Crazy. Wait a second, Havens. The Gods Must Be Crazy? The most successful foreign film ever released to that time? I must have my information wrong, because you distinctly remember The Gods Must Be Crazy being released by 20th Century Fox Classics, and that it opened in the fall of 1984. And you're actually correct. 20th Century Fox Classics did release The Gods Must Be Crazy on October 26, 1984, at the Music Hall Theater in Beverly Hills and the 68th Street Playhouse in New York City, But that was not the initial American theatrical release of The Gods Must Be Crazy. Jensen Farley originally released the movie in Miami, San Antonio, and several other secondary markets in the fall of 1982, where it was sold, shockingly, as a sexy comedy. Not unlike their salacious advertising for homework, their primary focus on the posters, trailers, and newspaper ads was around a scene where the heroine falls into a river and needs to take her clothes off to dry them. The film didn't do very well in that first wave, but someone at Fox happened to catch the film and liked it. When Jensen Farley went into bankruptcy proceedings in early 1984, Fox was able to pick up the American film rights for a song, the marketing was completely changed, and the rest was cinematic history. Ironically, this would not be the only time director Jamie Hughes would have trouble releasing a God's Must Be Crazy movie in the United States. The film's sequel... 
the aptly titled The Gods Must Be Crazy 2, was originally set up to be released by the Weintraub Entertainment Group, whom we covered on our first episode two weeks ago. But they went bankrupt in 1990 before that film could be released. Columbia Pictures would end up buying the sequel for a song and release it to theaters a year later, but that sequel would not come remotely close to seeing the same kind of success as the first film. Jensen Farley's only animated feature was November 1982's The Last Unicorn, featuring the vocal talents of Alan Arkin, René Abergenois, Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, Paul Fries, Robert Klein, Angela Lansbury, Christopher Lee, and Keenan Wynn, this Rankin-Bass production would become legendary, if only because shortly after this film was completed, Hayao Miyazaki would hire most of the film's Japanese crew to make Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and that team would then go on to form the core group of animators who established Studio Ghibli. Made on a TV budget of $3.5 million, compared to the $5.7 million for The Secret of Nim and $12 million for Disney's The Fox and the Hound, then the biggest budgeted animation film of all time, The Last Unicorn would go on to gross nearly $6.5 million during its abbreviated three-week theatrical engagement during the Thanksgiving season. His name is Lyle Swan. He's racing against the clock. Stand by for automatic. In more ways than one. Perimeter violation. Sector four. Terry, is that for real? Because this ride, instead of taking him a thousand miles forward, will take him a hundred and five years backward. Dr. Savage, really? Time Rider, the adventure of Lyle Swan. If I'm right, sir, he stepped out around 1875. Man, am I glad to see you. He just happened to be in the right place at the wrong time. Uh, I was wondering if uh, maybe you could show me on this map here where, uh, where I am. And fate gave him a present. Are you okay? Of the past. Where are you Only trouble was, he didn't know it. What was that? Where'd it go? I don't know. Hey, what the hell's happening here, huh? He didn't understand the people. Hey, why are those guys shooting at me like that? And they didn't understand him. Where did this come from? I'm taking toys mostly. See, I hang with technoid types. We party and they come up with all this Bonnaroo boogie. In short, everything was different. Take off your clothes. Well, what? Almost everything. You heard me, Mr. Swan. Time Rider. The Adventure of Lyle Swan. General Lee had had that machine. We won the war. The past present fantasy of a desert racer. A beautiful gunslinger. Where are you from, my friend? Canoga Park, LA. A renegade priest. Beautiful senor, where did you get this map? Got it at an Exxon station. And assorted bad guys. Jumped up and down on it. Up and down. Kicked it. Time Rider, the adventure of Lyle Swan, an off-road racer who's way, way off the road. William Deere's Time Rider, The Adventure of Lyle Swan, was Jensen Farley's big Christmas 1982 movie. 
Co-written with Michael Nesmith of the Monkees, Time Rider tells the story of a famed dirt biker who, during a big race in Baja, California, is accidentally transported back to the Old West of 1877, November 5th to be precise, which astute film lovers would recognize as the date Marty McFly kept traveling to in the various Back to the Future movies. You may also recognize November 5th as the date H.G. Wells travels forward in time to San Francisco in time after time. And what a great cast Deere assembled for his film. Fred Ward, Peter Coyote, Richard Masur, Tracy Walter, Ed Lauder, L.Q. Jones, and a young Chris Mulkey. Director Deere, who had previously worked with Nesmith on Elephant Parts, would later go on to make Harry and the Hendersons and Angels in the Outfield. Critics like Vincent Canby of the New York Times may have walked out of the film bemoaning the clunky execution of the film's many paradoxes, but the film was able to earn back a respectable $6 million theatrical gross from a $1 million budget. Wacko would be the first Jensen Farley release of what would end up being their final year of operation. And if there was a movie in their library that should have connected with audiences, Wacko was that movie a Canadian comedy horror film directed by Graydon Clark and featuring recognizable names like Joe Don Baker, Stella Stevens, Jeff Altman, and Academy Award winner George Kennedy. But Wacko wasn't all that wacko. And it was some of its supporting cast, who could have helped sell the film to a younger audience, wouldn't become better known for a short while. And I do mean a short while. Julia Duffy would make her first appearance on the hit CBS show Newhart not three weeks after Wacko opened in theaters. Elizabeth Daly would become better known from her appearance in Valley Girl three months after that. And Andrew Clay would still be a couple years away from perfecting that Dice Man character he would become so famous for. March 1983's Joystick would be the second Jensen Farley film by director Graydon Clark released into theaters in an eight-week period. Joystick also featured Joe Don Baker and Scott McGinnis from Wacko, and it took just 13 days to make. A local businessman tries to get a popular local video arcade shut down with the help of his two idiot nephews, although it's probable they didn't know what they were getting into when the movie was about to go into production, Midway Games helped the filmmakers by approving the use of some of their most popular games, including Pac-Man and Satan's Hollow, as well as the then-unreleased Super Pac-Man for the climactic video game challenge at the end. Clark may not have been a very good filmmaker, but he does deserve kudos for helping get some young actors some of their earliest roles. Joysticks would become one of the earliest films for John Grease, who would later go on to star in Real Genius and Napoleon Dynamite, Corinne Borer, who would go on to make Police Academy 4 and vice versa, and John Deal, best known as Detective Zito on Miami Vice. And there was a copious amount of nudity, thanks to the appearances of Playboy Playmate Kim Malin and an actress known as Kim J. Michelle, for whom this is her sole known appearance in any medium. The $300,000 production would go on to make more than 13 times that amount in its theatrical release. March 1983 would also see the release of Curtains, yet another Canadian tax shelter production horror film. Producer Peter R. Simpson, fresh off the success of 1980s Canadian tax shelter production horror film Prom Night, wanted to make a slasher film for adults, and set out to defy expectations of what quickly became a tire genre. 
John Vernon, the beloved Dean Warmer from Animal House, stars as celebrated filmmaker Jonathan Stryker, who is hosting a group of potential actresses for his next movie at his remote mansion, several of whom who end up being murdered, possibly by the muse of the director, who had herself committed in a mental institution in preparation for her film role, only to learn that the director is auditioning other women for that very role. Samantha Egger, the star of Dr. Doolittle, who also appeared prominently in David Cronenberg's The Brood, and Michael Wincott, who would later star in Talk Radio and The Crow, are also featured here. The Troubled Film started production in late 1980 and saw its original director leave after only half of the film had been completed. The film is unique in that it's presented in two acts, with different end credits for each act, because each director put their own imprint on their part of the film, neither style matching or complementing each other. Because neither filmmaker had directed a clear majority of the film, a pseudonym was used for the movie. Jonathan Stryker, the name of John Vernon's film director character. May's Chained Heat was yet another entry in the women in prison exploitation genre, although this one did garner a bit more publicity than most because of the inclusion of genre fan favorites Linda Blair, Sybil Danning, Tamara Dobson, and Stella Stevens. Dismissed by critics as being too campy and silly, and bemoaned by gay rights groups for its adverse and formulaic portrayals of lesbians as vicious predators, audiences made this a minor hit, grossing a little more than $6 million on a budget of slightly less than a million. July's Triumphs of a Man Called Horse was the third part of the Man Called Horse series nobody asked for, but you got anyway. As you may remember, Richard Harris starred in the first two movies in the 1970s about an Englishman who becomes chief of the Sioux Nation. Both 1970s A Man Called Horse and 1976's Return of a Man Called Horse were box office hits. So why not a part three? Because Harris would only make a token appearance at the start of the film, most of the film would be carried by Horace's son Coda, who would be played by Michael Beck the Ted McGinley of the early 1980s. Put Michael Beck in a movie and watch that movie die. After making a splash in Walter Hill's exceptional 1979 film The Warriors, the milquetoast Beck would crash and burn in Xanadu, then Battletruck, also known as Warlords of the 21st Century, then Megaforce, and then here in Triumphs of a Man Called Horse, before his film career was basically killed off by a little movie called The Golden Seal. Beck would be regulated to guest turns on television series for the next 35 years. Beck was bad, the script was bad, the direction was bad, the whole film was bad, and it disappeared from theaters very quickly. July's Off the Wall is the most oddball title of the library of Jensen Farley. It was produced by Frank Mancuso, who had previously produced the second and third installments of the Friday the 13th franchise. Directed by Rick Freebird, whose previous movie was the Dabney Coleman satire Prey TV. Stars Paul Sorvino and Patrick Cassidy and Rosanna Arquette. It's a simple enough story. A young woman frames two hitchhikers for her crimes, but then tries to break them out of jail after feeling a bitter remorse for her actions. And Mancuso's father was a big shot in Hollywood. Frank Mancuso Sr. would just the very next year end up becoming the chairman of Paramount Pictures. So why didn't a company like Paramount do a negative pickup 
for this like they did with the Friday the 13th movies. Probably because this film is so bad, one of the few reviews you can find for the film is by the late, great Roger Ebert, who called the movie one of the most lame-brained movies of recent memory. And we end Jensen Farley's run of distributor of movie pictures with two films that they were supposed to have distributed had they not gone bankrupt when they did. Forty years ago, he was the hero of the day until the system knocked him out of the skies. Flying without a pilot's license. Wearing underwear in public. Forty years ago, he said he'd never fly again. And for good reason. I couldn't even tell the good guys from the bad guys. But when his country calls... We need you badly, Captain Invincible. We need you now. Real badly. When the evil Mr. Midnight threatens America. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. It's time for the return of Captain Invincible, the hero who's forgotten how to fly, how to use his amazing computer brain, forgotten how to control his magnetic ability. What the world needs now oh, yeah. is a shining hero. Oh, yes, what the world needs now is a glory man who will fly down and save the day. It's the return of Captain Invincible. Legend in leotards. Cape contender and man of magnet. Fighting evil. Fighting booze. Choose your booze. Let's hit the red eye. There's nothing sicker in society than a lack of liquor and sobriety. So, drink, 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 drink. And fighting bull. Bull, bull, bull. The return of Captain Invincible. Everything's going to be just great again. Captain Invincible. Philippe Mora's Australian musical superhero comedy featuring Alan Arkin and Christopher Lee would eventually become a cult classic, but it never actually got an official theatrical distribution release in the United States. After running test screenings in Phoenix under the title Legend in Leotards and in Wichita earlier in the year, Jensen Farley filed for bankruptcy literally the week this was supposed to come out. Mora has been quoted saying prints of the film had already started arriving in theaters when the bankruptcy proceedings began, which effectively blocked its being able to be shown in theaters. The film would sit on the proverbial shelf for years until Magnum Entertainment finally put the movie out on VHS six years later. The Vows was supposed to capitalize on the Valley Girl craze of the early 1980s, Featuring Chuck Connors, Sonny Bono, and John Carradine, The Vowels tells a story of four clueless young women who decide to cheat a couple of drug dealers to raise funds to save an orphanage. Vestron and Home Video would finally make this a direct-to-video release in 1986. And if you're really interested in seeing it, it's rather easy to find in all its pan-and-scan glory on YouTube. 
but it has none of the style, the charm, or the wit of that other Valley Girl movie that did get released into theaters in 1983. So, what happened? Why did Jensen Farley go broke? Like many independent distributors before and after, they saw an unexpected early success and picked up the wrong titles in the hope that lightning would strike twice. Private Lessons was able to make $26 million while never playing in more than 225 theaters. Their next biggest hits, if you could see what I hear in The Last Unicorn, would not even gross $10 million while playing in more than double the theaters at their widest releases. In the fall of 1983, Jensen Farley's financial situation had deteriorated to a critical point. In October, Mr. Jensen and Mr. Farley flew to New York City to meet with their financial advisors and their largest creditors to seek their cooperation while they attempted to restructure their business. But on December 30th, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the United States District Court in the District of Utah. Jensen Farley did not have their own video label, contracting out their titles to other companies like Vestron Home Video, so they had little ancillary income post-theatrical. Depending on the deal, the theatrical distribution lights can range from hundreds of thousands of dollars to the low millions. The cost of a single 35mm print at the time would have been about $1,500 to print and to ship. So you're looking at another million dollars in distribution costs to get that film into 650 or so theaters. And then you got to add in several hundred thousand more for advertising in television, in radio, and in newspapers. A small company like Jensen Farley, which didn't have the strongest of track records to begin with and didn't have a steady supply of content waiting in the wings, wasn't going to get as favorable a percentage of the ticket sales back in rentals as a Disney or a Paramount. And those payments back from exhibitors, didn't always come in the timeliest of fashions. It's entirely likely that they spent close to $2 million getting a movie like Joysticks into theaters in March of 1983, but not have started collecting the rentals from those theaters until June or July at the earliest, depending on the terms of their agreements with the exhibitors. And then they would have only collected about half that $4 million gross in rentals. And then, while they're waiting for those revenues to come in from Joysticks, they would have spent millions more up front getting curtains and chained heat and Triumph of a Man Called Horse and Off the Wall released as well. It's possible they thought they would have enough coming in to cover those costs to continue into 1984 and beyond, but if enough exhibitors take their sweet time paying what they owe, you either need to find more sources to stay afloat or you're going to be forced to close shop. Raylan Jensen would eventually return to Sun Classics, the company he founded, and he remained active in motion pictures until his passing at the age of 71 in 2011. Claire Farley would also continue to work in the motion picture industry until his passing at the age of 64 in 2006. I've often thought about starting my own distribution company, especially when I've seen a really good movie at a film festival that never ends up getting picked up by any distributor because, hell, I don't know, they don't know how to sell it, they don't know how to cut it up into a two-minute trailer that instills what the movie's about without giving too much away. It really doesn't have any, quote, stars, unquote. Fuck if I know. Raylan Jensen and Claire Fairley did it, and they did it twice. And they did it at a time when it was far more expensive a proposal to distribute movies. 
Today, you can make one master file and then beam it to 4,000 theaters at the same time. And if your film was a big success and played for three months, that 400th show would look and sound just as good as that very first show. And the cost of creating that one file is minuscule in comparison to the millions of dollars it would cost to get the last unicorn into theaters. Thank you for listening to the Film Jerk Podcast. As always, I want to hear what you think, both positive and negative. You can leave me a note on this podcast page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. And if you do like this podcast, please make sure you subscribe and leave a rating and a review in the iTunes podcast store. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.